of the passage that we're gonna be looking at this morning from the book of Revelation, one commentator wrote, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said this is the part of Revelation where orthodox biblical commentators and scholars shake hands and part company and do not come back together until the very end of the book when we speak of the resurrection of the dead. Now two things, that's not to say that everyone who goes a different direction, certainly than I do or than anybody else, is, is necessarily wrong. We are dealing with the interpretation of prophetic scripture here, and we do our best, and we trust the Lord to lead. We trust that this book is truly a revelation of Jesus Christ, and that as we look for him in this book, we will find him, even if we don't always disagree, or if we don't always agree on the details. I also want to say there's lots of really, truly, biblically sound orthodox teachers, and we go off in different directions, sometimes sort of major different directions. Eventually, we'll get to Revelation chapter 20, and we'll be talking about the difference between premillennialism and amillennialism and preterism and a few other things. Um, we might have to have a couple of Bible studies to go with those sermons to make clear what we're talking about exactly. And there's also all kinds of variation in the details of how even within the same schools of thought we look at these things. As I said, biblically sound, orthodox, God-fearing, believing Christians have often looked at this book in different ways, and that's okay as long as we see Jesus here. And that's what I think is the most important part, that we come to the book, as I've said over and over again, and we'll probably continue to say over and over again, not looking for a list of scary stuff at the end of the world, not looking for the Antichrist, not trying to be overly concerned about some of the details, why a fourth of the people on the land and not a third or a fifth, for instance, in today's text. But if we come to it looking for the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we find him there, then I really don't think we can go wrong. So having said that, we go on into Revelation chapter six. I will be reading verses one through 11. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over, the over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? 
before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to our reading this morning, standing on the promises of God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear 
all that you have for us today in your holy word. Father, we pray that your word, the word of the gospel, may be a seed that would take, fruit, take root in our lives and bear fruit to eternal life, the fruit of the Spirit, Father, the fruit that brings honor and glory and praise to you through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. So as we have done so very often, and will probably continue to do, let's start here. God always keeps his promises. He always has, and he always will. My brother Matt, as we were preparing, and he's starting off with this very same sentence, I pushed it on him, I said, you gotta go there. Um, and he said, okay, well our next sentence then has to be the only promises that God has not kept are those promises that he has not kept yet. Because God always keeps his promises. He always has, and he always will. And in the case of those promises that he has not kept yet, we know that he will keep them because he always keeps his promises. This is really, really important to our text this morning because in spite of the way in which this book of Revelation has sometimes been portrayed, God's faithfulness, the reality that God always keeps his promises is exactly what's in view here. Now, I say that because, again, as we have seen several times since we started this series back in the fall, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as such, it is the revelation of the promise keeper himself. Because that's who Jesus is. He's the way in which God has fulfilled his promises to his people. And it's really important that we keep this front and center as we approach this particular text. Because as difficult as some of the things that I've already read and some of the things that I'm going to be reading a little bit later in the service are, they are kept in perspective when we keep ourselves and our gaze focused on the promise keeper, on Jesus Christ. That's really always true whenever we come to Scripture. So many times we come to Scripture and we get a little bit distracted by the details. So many people start seeking the gift and forget to seek the giver. So many times even people claim the promises inevitably forgetting that the promises always point to the promise keeper. We've just been through the Advent and Christmas season, for example, and there has been a lot of talk in the church and in the world and all over the place about peace on earth, goodwill toward men, which is indeed one of the promises that was spoken by the angel of the Lord to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. But the only way to find peace, the only way to find and have peace on earth is to fix our gaze on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who is himself the Prince of Peace. So when people send out cards saying peace on earth at Christmas time, and those cards are not either in their hearts or in the words on the card itself connected to Jesus, it's an empty and a hollow wish for something that cannot come unless we seek the giver of that gift unless we seek the one who made the promise and who will inevitably keep the promise. And of course, there are so many examples of God's keeping his promises when we consider just the Christmas season. 
when we consider the coming of his son into the world. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, that very familiar verse reads, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And in Matthew chapter one, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, God always keeps his promises. He promised the serpent really, but through Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden, I will put enmity between you and her and between her offspring and yours and you shall bruise his heel and he shall bruise or crush literally your head. He kept that promise in Christ Jesus. He made promises to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore. And when some of us were young people, we used to sing what I always thought was a ridiculous little song because he ended up dancing. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them. And so are you. And it might be a ridiculous little song, but that much is true. God kept his promise to Abraham. He kept his promises to David. He has always kept his promises and he always will. Even so, consider God's promise to his covenant people Israel in Leviticus chapter 6. This is a chapter that having put out the covenant now lays out the promises, the promised blessings and the promised sanctions of that covenant. So to his people, God said, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And there's more, I'm gonna skip a few verses here. Because he just goes on with these promises of blessing to his people if they would be faithful and they would keep his covenant. And that promised blessing ends with these words, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. We sometimes think of that as a new covenant promise and it is, it was an old covenant promise too. I am the Lord, your God little interpretive thing, just in case you're reading through Leviticus sometime in your Bible reading, which probably comes up pretty quick. Um, watch for that phrase in Leviticus, I am the Lord. That's the whole point of the book. So just watch for it. Um, he will say, do this, I am the Lord. That's why, just do it, because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves, and I have broken the bars of your yoke and have made you walk erect, which is all pretty amazing. But the passage doesn't end there on that amazing note. It goes on, Leviticus 26, 14. But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, 
so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant. And please notice a reference here to breaking the covenant. It's important. So if you keep it, if you're faithful, if you're obedient, if you do my commandments, I will pour out blessing that you have never imagined. But if you don't, if you don't do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. This, not that. Not the blessings that I spoke of earlier, but rather, God says, and remember that this is God speaking, okay? God says, rather, I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And it goes on for quite a while from that point. And these are not the kind of passages that make it into those little golden book of Bible promises that we sometimes give one another as gifts. Nevertheless, God promises blessing for covenant keepers, and God promises something else for covenant breakers. But sometimes we read through the Old Testament so fast or maybe so slow that it's easy for us to miss the line that connects Leviticus 26 to the various judgments that God brings in the Old Testament against the land when his people were faithless and disobedient. As Isaiah wrote, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, therefore he cursed of ours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. So we have to see judgment in all the various contexts where we might find that in scripture, not as God's emotional, wrathful, angry reaction to people who are just too stubborn to do what he tells them to do, but as a pure and holy and righteous, wrathful judgment against those who have actually broken his covenant because God keeps his promises. And really, if he didn't keep his promise in Leviticus 26, 14, the one where he promised to visit people with panic, with wasting disease, and so on, could you really trust him to keep the good promises? Like Leviticus 26, 11, where he said, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I've debated for a couple of days about whether or not I'm going to tell this story, but I'm going to do it, and I want to tell it in a way that is clear. I do not endorse the behavior of the mom in this story, okay? Let's be clear. This is a story that I heard when I was a child, and it probably happened sometime when my dad was a child. Different time, different world. I am not telling the story as an endorsement. I am telling the story to make a point. So I heard this story about this boy who was just pestering his mother. I can get into that role when I'm thinking about the story because, you know, been there, done that. Bought the T-shirt. Um, this mom was doing everything that she could to get supper on the table, and he was standing there in the kitchen while she was trying to work, tugging on her apron. So it tells you it happened a long, long time ago. Nobody wears aprons anymore. 
He's tugging on her apron, and he's saying, Mom, 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 Mom. I'd add about 20 more moms if I was telling this story about my kids, but you get the idea. Anyway, this mom finally got so exasperated with her son that she turned to him and said, son, if you don't stop that and just go get washed up and ready for supper, I'm gonna throw you out the window, which as I've said, I do not endorse. This is not the wisest approach to discipline. I am not recommending any of you with children of any age to actually use this method. But when the boy didn't stop, his mom thought for a minute and realized there's a huge fluffy white snowdrift right outside the kitchen window. So she picked him up, she opened the window, she dropped him out into the snow. And then ran out, of course, and picked him up and brushed him off and comforted him and took him and got him ready for supper. But the thing is, the boy, after he had grown up, said, you know what, after that day, I never doubted my mom's word ever again. If she said she was gonna do something, I believed her. If she said she was gonna discipline me, you better believe I knew discipline was coming because she had followed through on that promise. And again, this is not an endorsement for dropping children out of windows, even if there is a snowdrift outside. Have I said that enough so that nobody feels like they have to write me an email and say, that was terrible, that story that you told. I'm not endorsing the practice, but it makes the point, doesn't it? If she had not kept her promise to throw him out the window, if she had just let him continue to misbehave and be bad, he wouldn't have believed her the next time she said, if you don't stop that, I'm gonna have to discipline you. And he might not have believed her when she said, you know, if you would just go wash up, I've got a little treat for you here in the kitchen too. And that brings us to Revelation chapter six, believe it or not, because what's about to happen in Revelation six as King Jesus breaks the seals on the scroll of the covenant is the same sort of thing that Isaiah was talking about. Remember, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. In Leviticus chapter 26, and again in Deuteronomy chapter 28, they're very parallel passages, God told his people, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. That's the context we absolutely need for Revelation chapter six. If we don't have it, we're gonna get kind of carried away in some weird direction. So here we go. Revelation chapter six, verse one. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And the lamb, of course, is Jesus. We saw that in the last couple of weeks, this Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world and who came to God on his throne and received from him the scroll. 
And he took that scroll because he was found worthy to break its seals and to open the book. And so one of the four living creatures, that's the the cherubim and seraphim that we sing about in the song, Holy, 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 that we have seen near the throne of God in several of the visions that we've looked at in Exodus and Ezekiel and Daniel and other places. One of those living creatures says, come. Now watch from last week, I I hope you remember. John hears something. The seal is being broken The angel says, come, and then he sees. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, what I'm about to say is not undisputed. Um, There are commentators who have some differing opinions on this, but I think if we start with the principle, start with what we know, then it seems fairly obvious that this rider on a white horse corresponds to the rider on the white horse in chapter 19, verse 11, where John wrote, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Sound familiar? The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. That also should sound familiar, because Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, I am the faithful and true one. So this rider on the horse in Revelation 19 is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is none other, I believe, than Jesus the King, the one who's called faithful and true all through this book. In chapter 19, we are being told that he judges and makes war. And in chapter 6, when the first seal is broken and the rider goes forth on the white horse, we are told that war follows in his train. When he had opened the second seal... I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. By the way, I don't have time this morning to go into this, but if you want further scriptural evidence that these four horsemen are about the business of bringing God's judgment to those who have broken the covenant, then go home this afternoon. This would be a good thing to do anyway. Go home and read the book of the prophet Zechariah, where you will find four horsemen described in very similar, not exactly the same, but four four horsemen described in very similar terms in chapter 1 and in chapter 6. And the comparison makes for a really interesting study. So the white horse goes forth, Jesus goes forth conquering and to conquer and war goes forth behind him. Next, Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I also want to be clear, even if the rider on the white horse was not Jesus, which I firmly believe it is, still everything that is happening is happening because Jesus is breaking the scrolls on the book. So don't get into the mode of thinking that all of the bad things that happen in Revelation are somehow happening in spite of God. They are happening because God is working out his purpose, fulfilling his covenant, keeping his promises. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, 
and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine, which is to say that famine follows war, which it often does to this very day. Now when I said that good biblical Orthodox Christians often have differing interpretations of some of these things, I could have been talking about my dad, who I regarded as a good biblical Orthodox Christian, but who would disagree entirely with me on most of what I'm saying, um, just from week to week. But he did have a good illustration when he was talking about this part in a sermon. A denarius is a day's wages. So imagine we're saying a quart of wheat for a day's wages. How much would that, how many people would that feed? And three quarts of barley, if you're content for something lesser, my dad would say, so it's like, you know, a T-bone steak for day's wages that you have to cut up and share with your whole family. If you're content with McDonald's hamburgers, you can get three of them. But the point here is famine. The point here is hunger, it's want, it's deprivation. The angel with the scale shows up over in the book of Ezekiel as well. Famine follows war. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. Some commentators see this in terms of like death is on the horse, and Hades, the grave, follows after. They are not the same thing. And that the image that John is giving is this grim, frightening caricature death, like the grim reaper, like we sometimes encounter that image in popular culture, and he's riding on this horse, and people are dying as he goes forth, and the grave is following along, like pulling a wagon, gathering up the bodies of the dead. The word for pale in this passage can mean green or greenish, and I think that may have the connotation of a sickly or a diseased-looking horse with Hades and the grave following after. What a horrifying picture of judgment. Jesus goes forth conquering and to conquer and in his train because of God's righteous wrath against the sin of mankind. There is war, there is famine, and there is death. But judgment it is. It's the only way to read this because these things happen as the Lamb, the Son of God, breaks the seals so that he can open a book. This is also judgment because it's exactly what God promised in Leviticus 26, as I read a little bit earlier. But if you will not listen to me but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. If you tuned out a little bit when I was reading this before because it's Leviticus and that's what we do, listen carefully to what God promised in Leviticus 26. If you break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you. I will come to you. I will visit you, God, with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. So exactly what we're talking about in Revelation 6, pestilence death, famine, and war. 
and even the almost offhand reference to the wild beasts of the earth in Revelation 6 is a direct fulfillment of Leviticus 26, 22, a little later in that passage where God said, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you which shall bereave you of your children and shall destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. Because the promise of judgment didn't end with Leviticus 26, 17, it was just getting started. Now I'm not gonna read all of this, but verse 18 says, and if in spite of this, in spite of the things that I've already unleashed against you and visited you with, if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Now he repeats that. I will discipline you sevenfold for your sins, Leviticus 26, 18. And then he lists off a few more things. And then again in verse 21, and again in verse 24, and again in verse 28. Then I will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Watch the repetition in this judgment passage from Leviticus of these cycles of seven. Because we're going to see that in the book of Revelation in the future when we look at seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. It's just cycles of things. Um, It may come to this at some point later on, but again, get away from the chronological understanding of the things that happen in Revelation are like one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, Matt and I went for a walk earlier in the week and we were out on a creek in Calgary at Fish Creek Park. And we're walking along and here's this great big rock sticking up out of the ice and we were kind of looking at it. It was interesting and remarkable. There was some water bubbling around it. And then we looked and we saw a tree sort of poking out of the bank. See, it's not that the tree wasn't there when we saw the rock. It's that we looked at two different things and one of them had to be looked at first. So through Revelation, when John says, I saw this and then I saw that, imagine I saw the baptismal font and then I saw the pulpit. It's not that either thing is in some causal way connected, it's that the visions are happening in a certain sequence because John is one person and he can't see everything all at once. And that's what's happening as these cycles unfold in the book of Leviticus and as they unfold in Revelation. Leviticus tells us there would come a time, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, God says, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins right up to the day when I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. If you've ever read the Old Testament descriptions of the promised land, land of milk and honey, right? Remember the grapes of Eskel? When the spies came back out, and they're carrying a pole, and there's a cluster of grapes hanging from that pole between their shoulders that's dragging on the ground as they walk. Well, then go look at pictures of that land, even from the 1930s and 40s. The the Jewish people have been greening it up again. But if you go back just a few decades, it's not a land of milk and honey. It's a land of desert and desolation. That's because 
in the late 60s AD, the Romans came to what was arguably still somewhat a land of milk and honey and laid siege to it for four years. And in the course of that siege, they burned every tree, every stick of wood, everything that they could find. They raped and pillaged the land and they left behind a scorched earth desert. And they were there because God sent them as judgment. If we had more time, we might consider the connection between that promise in Leviticus and Jesus' statement to Jerusalem in Matthew 23, where he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how, I, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. See, your house, which always referred to the temple, is left to you desolate. And as we carry on in Revelation, we're gonna see some correspondence to these cycles of sevenfold judgment, as I said, in the trumpets and the bowls of God's wrath. It's also worth noting that the Roman Jewish historian Josephus in his book, Wars of the Jews, records with graphic detail, I mean graphic, that in the desolation of Jerusalem in AD 70, every promised curse, every promised curse from Leviticus 26 was fulfilled even the most gruesome of those which I did not read this morning and I will not read because I don't want this video to get flagged and or banned on YouTube. And the content of Leviticus 26, as with some other parts of scripture, speaks very graphically and Josephus says, it happened. It happened in that city as the Roman armies laid siege first to the city and later to the temple itself, which had been turned into a fortress, all of those things came to pass. But you have to understand what this is about. The Apostle John in another place wrote, sin is lawlessness. When you understand that idea of lawlessness in the way that John's using it, he could have said sin is covenant-breaking. According to the Westminster Standard, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is always defined in terms of God's covenant with his people. God decides what is sin, not us. We don't get to look at the world and think, well, you know, I know the Bible says something is sinful, but that doesn't seem all that sinful to me. God decides. And sin is always defined in terms of the breaking of God's law, the breaking of God's commandments, the breaking of God's covenant. Furthermore, our own Heidelberg Catechism reminds us, and I quote, God is terribly angry about the sin we are born with as well as the sins we personally commit. Not because he's just a dad who's frustrated and wants to throw us out the window, but because he entered into covenant with people and he keeps his promises, he keeps his covenant and we just keep breaking them. So he is terribly angry about the sin we are born with as well as the sins we personally commit. I am still quoting from the Heidelberg. As a just judge, he punishes them now and in eternity. He has declared, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law, end quote. 
So this is serious business. As the late R.C. Sproul, I believe it was, who once said, sin is cosmic treason. It's not just that we do some things that annoy God. Sin is cosmic treason. It is rebellion against the God who made us. It is rebellion against the God who not only made us, but then condescended to enter into covenants with us. But here's the good news. It had to come sooner or later. Here's the good news. As we have seen in the breaking of the first four seals, Jesus is the promise keeper. That's how you need to understand those things that are happening. God is fulfilling his promises. He is keeping his covenant. He is bringing judgment on a people that have been warned over and over again for thousands of years. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that he is the promise keeper, even if sometimes those promises feel more like threats. Remember you say that on a playground? You know, you'd, you'd say, you know, do that again, I'm gonna pound you. And the guy'd say, is that a threat? And you'd bluster and say, it's a promise. <laughs> sometimes threats feel, or promises feel like threats. But they're still promises because they're still based on covenant. And that's what we're seeing as he opens the first four seals. But look what happens as he breaks the fifth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And we will talk more, if God is willing, about that prayer next Sunday. But for this morning, consider God's answer to that prayer. These are people who have been martyred, died for their faith, and caught up in all of the trauma of those distressing days of vengeance, as Luke describes them, or as Jesus describes them in Luke. There were Christians, there were followers of God, Stephen, was murdered for his faith by unbelieving people who were in cosmic rebellion against the living God. And these martyrs cry out from under the altar, how long until you avenge our blood? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In simple terms, then a promise is made to these martyrs to these people of God. To the church at Sardis, Jesus had promised the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and, <coughs> and before his angels, which tells us something about who these martyrs are. They are the people of God, they are Christians. They are those who have been redeemed by the blood of the land, lamb. But then these martyrs are told to rest just a little longer. Just wait, be patient. A day is coming. A day is coming when the injustices that have been done, when the covenant breaking that has been done will be avenged. And when I will reward my people. And if as we have seen, God is faithful to fulfill all of the words of his covenant, then he will fulfill this promise too. Even though it might have seemed to those souls under the altar that maybe things didn't go exactly the way that they would have planned. 
as I said, we'll come back to that another day. For now, consider this from Isaiah 40. God says, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So, verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Isn't that just another way of saying how long? How long, O Lord? Why do you say, my cause is disregarded by my God when you know that God is the one who calls all of the stars by name and brings them out and everything in this universe that he made works according to his plan and his will. But having asked the question, how long, why is my cause disregarded by my God, God's answer to them and to us is this, have you not known Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And then the part you all know. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And that's a promise. And God always keeps his promises. He always has and he always will. Let's pray. Father, give us faith to take our stand on the promises that you have made to us through Jesus Christ, the living word. And help us to believe beyond doubt that all of those promises are yes and amen in him. And to know that even in a world where sometimes so many things are puzzling and inexplicable to us, that if we just look to you with the eyes of faith, we will see and understand that you do keep your promises. And that a day is coming when Jesus will set right everything that was ever made wrong through the sin of the people that you created. And when you will be glorified above all and when righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And you and your son and the Holy Spirit will be exalted above all. Above all angels, above all creation, above everything that has ever been and every creature in heaven and on earth and in the sea and all that is in them will proclaim, worthy are you, our Lord and our God. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.